When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To help support this podcast and to get exclusive access to new videos every week, which are packed with history, current affairs, and a whole lot more besides, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Culloden for me is part of my origin myth (laughs) in my imagination of nowhere else. Once I realised that I was connected to anything, I realised I must be potentially connected to everything. In this episode, we come face to face with Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender who swept onto the bloody historical stage, hell-bent on claiming the British crown in the midst of a pan-European civil war, with complex religious allegiances swirling around, a simmering feud that had been coming to the boil for decades, finally reached boiling point, and the curtains drew aside for the Jacobites' last stand. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last podcast, we listened to a poignant lament ring out as the Act of Union came into force and England and Scotland were joined. Where are we now? Yeah, yeah, last week we saw two countries brought together by the pen. Now we're marching with a dashing Stuart pretender intent on bringing war back to these shores. They call them Bonnie Prince Charlie. He lands on the Scottish island of Eriskay, raises his standard and builds an army around himself. His fight for the British throne leads to the last battle ever fought on British soil, which took place here, on the beautiful moorland of Culloden. Today, Paul, we are on one of the most unforgettable, infamous, iconic battlefields, certainly in the British Isles, but there are those who would stake its claim in notoriety in world history. It's Culloden, where the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745-46 came to its bloody conclusion. 
after that battle, there was no more in the way of Jacobite challenge to the monarchy, to the regime, to the establishment in, in these British Isles. It, it's a final full stop at the end of a long story. Do you know, it's funny, Paul, until I came to put all this together, you know, the, the love letter and the... I really hadn't realised how many of them directly involve you. <laughs> Um, Culloden's another of the battlefields that you and I excavated together for two men in a trench. Yeah. Actually, it's the very first one, if you remember. Yeah. It's, it's only becoming apparent to me now as we go through them together that I realise, you know, you were there in so many of these places. And, you know, I, I had been to Culloden Battlefield many times before and I've been there many times since. I suspect you were only really there for that for that one project. Would that be right? Or have you been back since? I have been back, but that was the first time I ever went, yeah. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's it's amazing to me the extent to which, you know, when when you and I decided to do the podcast together, I I hadn't realised how intimately connected you you are (laughs) to so many of them, it's funny. I don't know whether you remember this, but before filming anywhere, I'd always ask you about Mm. your connections to the place. And one of the things that has always stuck in my mind is that at Culloden, you had a wonderful old photograph of yourself. I, I, I did and I do. Um, I, I mean, made, made all the more poignant now, it always was. It, it's a photograph. I've used it when I've been doing public speaking. Um, I, I, in the photograph, I'm about, I think I'm about maybe 12, 12 or 13, and I'm crouching down beside uh, the, the gravestone, the clan gravestone for the Camerons. The Camerons were amongst the, the many clans that took a hit on at Culloden. Um and my mum uh, is Norma Agnes Cameron Neil, so we're connected to the Camerons. You know, in in my in my maternal side, I'm connected to the Cameron clan. And but my mum's maiden name is Neil with two L's, which is why I'm Neil, although with just one L. Because uh, because there is that there's a, there's certainly a, it's probably more than more than Scottish that I'm sure it's used by others but there's a Scottish tradition of uh, keeping mother's maiden names going because obviously when a woman marries traditionally you know she takes on the husband's family name and in that sense uh, maiden names can be kind of lost so there's always been a tradition amongst Scots of giving maiden names t- to children to keep them going so the name so the name stays alive so that's why I'm Neil. Yeah, but the the, photo, the photograph in question it was taken by my dad, and my my dad um, he was mad for going to the Highlands. He and I went off and just boys' own sort of trips together when I was about that age, and actually when I was older we did various things together like that. Just he and I, because there's just you know we've got a mum and two big sisters, so he and I were the two boys in the family, if you like. So he used to encourage me to come away with him on you know sort of boys boys' own holidays. So we'd go away for a weekend or whatever, and my dad had this magnetic pool to, to the Highlands and so off off we would go and he took the photograph and he, I remember him taking special care to take the picture because for my mum so that she would see a picture of me beside the, the clan the clan gravestone and I lost my dad. my dad my dad died last year so everything that's memories of my dad has become infinitely more poignant since he died and do you know I haven't I haven't actually looked at that photograph since 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 he died, I haven't had cause to look at it, but I can picture it so clearly. And one of the funny things about it is, um, for, for people who, who go to Culloden, if you haven't been before, it's been played around with quite a bit over the years. And f- for a long time, the battlefield had a road running right through it. 
that photograph, I'm crouching down basically beside the road. There used to be a road with the clan gravestones beside it. Uh, but if you go there now, uh, the road's been rerouted and it's all grassed over now. But if you if you look, you can sort of still see the camber of where the road was. But it's been very much the case that for a long time there have been very careful efforts to try as far as possible to get the battlefield back to looking like it would have done on the day. The date, the date in question is the 16th of April, 1746. And in terms of encouraging certain plants to grow back and moving modern things out of the way, for example, a, you know, a modern road, people have gone to great, great effort and great lengths to try and so that when you go as far as possible, you're looking at the, at the battlefield as it would have looked and felt. So it is quite interesting, you know, that photograph's a little bit of historical record, really, in a way, because it remembers a time when there was, you know, when it, when it did look a bit different. And there, there's now a fantastic, fantastic modern visitor centre there. A very fancy pants, very, very well thought through. And some of the, some of the musket balls and the rest that we found uh, are there on display. So, you, you know, our efforts and the, and the team that when we excavated up there, it's, it's become part of the, become part of the bigger story of the battlefield, which is which is great. That's our one of our little titchy tiny contributions to <laughs> to the better understanding of of the of the battlefield of Culloden. I said at the top that it's you know it's 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 legendary. Culloden is one of those names. It registers for a lot of people for a for a lot of reasons, especially now when feelings about Scottish independence or not are, are so current, anything that seems to suggest old enmities, uh, blood spilt in the name of who should be running the country, and it keeps this uh, heat under under the simmering pot that is Culloden. Culloden makes people, moves people from around the world. Scots go and see it, British go and see it. People come from all over the world. Japanese, any, any day you're there in in normal times in the summer there'll be busloads of uh, say Japanese tourists come because the Japanese people have a, have a tradition of Bushido the way of the warrior the bravery of the, of the single warrior in, in single combat samurai style and they identify with the famous iconic Highlander with his claymore with his, with his broadsword so they, they see a kindred spirit bizarrely you know people from the, from the islands of, of Japan so very very far away they sense a connection to the spirit of the Highlander. American people, obviously, Americans, obviously, many, many Americans have connections to Scotland and they come in search of clan history. And you go there and you'll, you'll find people standing quietly crying. There are the gravestones to the, to the mass graves of the clans. They're boulders, really, rough boulders, each with a with the name, like Cameron, etched into them, carved into them. But in, in fact, they were put in in, 18, in the 1880s by the then landowner, who was keen on presenting the battlefield as a, as a place of interest. Many, many islanders and, and Hanoverian soldiers died on the battlefield, and they're, they're, they will have been, many of them will have been buried somewhere on the battlefield. So the, although those big boulders went in much later they're probably somewhere in the vicinity of where folk memory suggests at least some of the dead were laid to rest you, you and I and the team we had a go at testing with the ground penetrating radar to see if there were graves around and we didn't find any evidence 
But absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as we kept on telling ourselves. Uh, and but there, there must be, there must be, there will be graves. But so far, they have not come to light. They haven't been disturbed in all the years since uh, since 1746. But it's simply an extraordinary place to visit. There are those battlefields that you can go to where if you go with a guide or if GPS points you to the location, you would be hard pushed to sense that it's just farmland. A lot of the battlefields of the past, they don't seem to resonate, but for all sorts of reasons. When you go to Culloden, there is an atmosphere of sadness that's palpable. I would defy anyone to go and, and walk around so open-minded and not feel some sense of significance, some sense of moment. When you go, there's sets of flags that show where the opposing forces lined up. The Jacobites had been in retreat for a long time. They'd got as far south with Bonnie Prince Charlie, they'd got to Derby and within 100 miles or so of, of London. Then they turned back. They kind of ran out of steam. They were supposed to have whipped up English Jacobite support. Jacobite is a, is a Latin form of James. So the Jacobite was the name, the self taken name of those who were in support of returning James, a James Stuart, <laughs> to the throne. So Jacobus is the Latin form of James, so they, they called themselves Jacobites, and, and there, there were those in England as well as in Scotland who would have preferred to see a Catholic king or queen back on the throne. So having come as close as, as Derby on the way south, the hope had been that English Jacobites would rise in great numbers, but that, that didn't that didn't really happen. And so, for whatever reason, the Jacobites turned around at that point and came all the way back up, and they, they fought a slightly inconclusive battle at Falkirk in the January of 1746. And then, by March, they were back up in Inverness, and the Hanoverian, the Royalist army, had mobilised and got into position... And the battle unfolded there on, on Culloden Moor. And when you go there now, there's sets of flags that show where the, the Royalist Hanoverian army was. And then there's a distance of rough moorland. And then there's there's a set of flags that show you where Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Jacobite Highlanders and the rest lined up. And it's quite a thing. It's quite a thing to stand between the flags and look across because for one thing you get a real sense of it's quite a distance so what happened famously on the day there was all sorts of counsel given to Bonnie Prince Charlie not to not to fight but he decided to roll the dice as these would-be rebel leaders are sometimes inclined to do they just decide it's now or never so he got his bedraggled and outnumbered men into position They'd been up all night. They had they had contemplated a night march to try and surprise the royalist army. That didn't that didn't work out, and so hungry and you know sleepless and exhausted, they, they formed up in the ranks on Dromossi Moor, Culloden Moor. It's called Dromossi Moor by the locals, but it's gone down in history as Culloden Moor. And uh, they watched as the well regimented, well trained, red coated Hanoverian army got into position like a big machine, you know, well drilled. They you know they ground towards them and took up their positions with artillery. And when the battle commenced, uh, there was artillery fire towards the, the Jacobite lines. 
and it was punishing. You know, they were firing round shot and grape shot, which is like musket balls in bags. Turns a cannon into like a giant shotgun. And for some period of time, the Highlanders were in the face of this and then pushed beyond all endurance on command or, or in any event, they, they, they began their charge. And when you, when you stand where the Jacobite army was and contemplate the distance, it's a heck of a long way. And they were running forward into artillery and musketry. So that the air is thick with lead and cannonballs. And they had to run into this. They would have fired a few shots, with their, fired a shot each with their muskets and then dropped them and then they took out their swords and they ran. This was the, the famous Highland Charge. But across the distance, it was just too far. The shock element of the Highland Charge was diluted by the distance they had to cover. Some of them, especially over on the, the Jacobite right, they got in amongst the Hanoverian soldiers and there was sword play and fighting with bayonets, fighting hand to hand, fighting face to face. And for a few moments in certain parts, it was a close run thing. In certain parts, the Highlanders and, and those, those Jacobites, they, they, almost, they almost began to make the kind of impact that they would have needed to make to turn the battle. But rigid discipline on the part of the, the Hanoverians, commanded as they were by the Duke of Cumberland, who was a cousin of Bonnie Prince Charlie. They were related by blood, and the drill of the professional soldiery won out. We speculate to this day, but it was probably the stuff of minutes. We used to say it lasted an hour, but... In all likelihood, it probably wasn't even anything like as long as that. But it was a, a bloody and horrifying spectacle. It was a defeat for the Jacobites. And then in the aftermath, because it had been, after all, a rebellion against the king and the crown and the establishment, the Duke of Cumberland unleashed a brutal retaliation, punishment, on the not just on the, on the men on the field, but on the whole Highland way of life. And for weeks and months, there were atrocities and, and people were rounded up and put to death. And You know, men, women and children. It was a dreadful quasi-genocidal attempt to stamp on the, on the sometime rebellious Highlanders once and for all. So things were done. Dreadful things were done. But ultimately, it achieved what it had been set out to do, which was it crushed the appetite for rebellion once and for all. And never again, after Culloden, would red-coated British soldiers have to fight local domestic rebels. It just never happened again. Uh, and so, and for that reason, amongst others, Culloden is down in the history books as the last pitched battle on British soil. Just there, we looked at uh, Sedgemoor, which was the last pitched battle on English soil. Well, Culloden was the last of those to take place in the British Isles. red-coated soldiers would go on to fight in the Seven Years' War and conflicts around the globe, but they never had to worry again about a domestic uprising like, like Jacobitism because that, had been, that threat had been stamped on once and for all. And, and the brutality of it and the passions that it had engendered at the time linger in the air at Culloden. You know, they're sort of snagged on the, on the heather and on the, and on the fence posts like, like little fragments of sheep's fleece. That sadness is, is there. And ironically, Culloden and the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745-46, of which it was a part, it, it, it's still mightily misunderstood and, and misrepresented to this day. 
People who've heard of it, Scots as well as everybody else, an alarming number think it was Scotland against England. And it wasn't. There were more Scots fighting on the Hanoverian side against the Jacobite rebellion than fought for the Bonnie Prince, Charlie. It's sometimes characterised as Lowlander against Highlander, which it wasn't because it was more mixed than that. You couldn't even simplify it to say that it was Catholic against Protestant. You know, the Jacobites were wanted a Catholic monarch and the, the Hanoverians were representing a Protestant king and a, a Pro, the Protestant house of Hanover. But in reality, what the Jacobite rebellion was, was a sideshow in a pan-European civil war called the War of the Austrian Succession, which ran from 1740 to 1748. So Culloden and the rebellion of which it was the climax is within is within a larger pan-European engagement. The Austrian monarch died, and as far as some people were concerned, the heir was Maria Theresa, who was Catholic. And she was the heir to the throne, and Britain supported her in that claim. But the French, it's always the French, it's always Britain and French, and the French tried to uphold Salic law, which is an old European tradition that says that women can't inherit. So because it was Maria Theresa, because it was a woman, they, they said, you know, it has to be a man. So they challenged, they challenged Maria Theresa's right to the throne. So bizarrely, within the context of the War of the Austrian Succession, the Hanoverians, the British establishment, were supporting a Catholic monarch in Austria. They were allies. You know, so that's the extent to which it's not about Catholic v Protestant. It was much more complicated than that. So because Britain and France, as they invariably did, up until much more recently, found themselves on opposite sides of every conflict, just about, the French decided to try and create trouble for the British. So they decided that if they could instigate a rebellion in Scotland, maybe the Brits would have to pull their troops off the continent to go and deal with it. So it's like a diversionary tactic. And so the French cajoled Charles Edward Stuart, the Bonnie Prince, to foment a rebellion, an anti-British rebellion in, in the Highlands, and then drive south and upset the apple cart. So it was in the French interests in the larger War of the Austrian Succession to create trouble at home. And Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites just fitted the bill. So they, they sent Bonnie Prince Charlie up to the Highlands just to make trouble in hopes that the British would be diverted. Now, it didn't work out like that, but that's why the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745-46 happened. It was political Machiavellian machinations in the bigger picture of pan-European interstate, internation rivalry that trouble was fomented back in Britain to cause trouble for the House of Hanover. So that's where all the trouble was kicked up from. And yet, because of the way it's been portrayed really in films and in, and in books by people like Sir Walter Scott, this idea has come that it was these doughty, noble Scottish Highlanders fighting oppressive English authoritarians. And it's to completely misrepresent the reality of the situation. But that idea of it being, for, for most people, it's a sort of a Scotland against England war. It's still what so many people understand of the Jacobite Rebellion, and it's just not the case. 
ultimately, what it boils down to is, is Culloden is just one of those places that you can go to that resonates with a dark period in British history. It's there. It's there to be experienced. And some of the places that, that are in the love letter to the British Isles are, are places of happiness and triumph. Other places are places of darkness and sadness. And Culloden is one of those. After all this time, I don't bother myself with taking sides. You know, I don't come down on either Bonnie Prince Charlie or, or the Duke of Cumberland. I don't pick a side. It was just a dreadful event that ultimately lots of ordinary men met agonised and undignified, horrific deaths on a few hundred square yards of, of moorland in the Highlands. You know, once again, they died these anonymous deaths. And, you know, to get back to that photograph you mentioned at the start, we don't even know where they're buried. You know, these all these poor souls that got swept up, rounded up, made to fight for one side or the other, and in the main, disappeared without a trace and their names aren't remembered on any gravestone and it's just a place of universal sadness. Was Bonnie Prince Charlie living in Scotland at the time? No. No, he was on the he was he was living on the continent. His father was James Francis Edward Stuart, who had a bona fide claim. He was from the House of Stuart and he had a bona fide claim on the British throne. That is without a doubt. And so they called him the Old Pretender. Pretender in that context, coming out of the French language, the Romance languages, means a claimant on the throne. And the Old Pretender was knocking on a bit by the time of Culloden. He'd had a go in the past. He'd been part of previous rebellions. But in this one, he allowed his son to go and stake his claim on his behalf. I mean, notionally, had Bonnie Prince Charlie which is to say Charles Edward Stuart, being successful, it ought to have been and would have been hypothetically his father who would have become king, not Charlie. So no, in answer to your question, the Stuarts were in exile. They couldn't be in Britain. Ever since the time of the Glorious Rebellion of, of, uh, of 1688, when James, James II absconded, left the throne vacant, William and Mary, Protestants, they come in. Ever since then, there had been those of a Catholic frame of mind who wanted a Stuart returned to the throne of Great Britain. And so Charles Edward Stuart, who was in his prime, was sent to do the job. He's charismatic by all accounts, very personable, apparently a good-looking chap. He was the young pretender young by comparison to the old pretender his dad. So he would lead the rebellion and then if if and when he got to London and chased away King George of the House of Hanover, he would have welcomed his, his old dad over to occupy the throne. Interestingly, everyone calls him Bonnie Prince Charlie, as though the Highlanders were calling him by a familiar diminutive. Charlie, it never happened. It's a mishearing of the Gallic form of Charles, which is a, I I won't, I mean, I I, I apologise unreservedly for my, what's going to be my mispronunciation, but in Gallic speakers' mouths, Charles is rendered into a name that sounds a bit like Cherlach. And when the non-Gallic speakers heard the Highlanders shouting Cherlach, 
by which they meant Charles. English speakers heard it as Charlie. And a legend was born, so they started saying Bonnie Prince Charlie, but it was just because the Highlanders that he was amongst were calling him Terlich, and it, it got misheard. Now I will have butchered that pronunciation, but somewhere in there is the truth. It's mishearing. So he came, he arrived in the Highlands, arrived by boat, obviously, arrived out in the, in the Outer Isles, came in, came to shore, and amongst the first to rise, he came, he came to rouse the clans. And the clans were all independent entities. They were families, like mafia style. You know, they were like the Corleones, but, you know, you've got, you've got Camerons and McDonalds, and sometimes they're, they're working in company with one another, sometimes they're at each other's throats. And so Charles came to raise the clans as one, you know, to set aside their petty differences and focus on the big aim, which was putting a, a Catholic Stuart back on the throne. And Cameron of Lochiel, that was his seat, that was his home, Cameron of Lochiel, also known as the Gentle Lochiel, because he, he had a reputation as a, as a good upstanding man. He and his Camerons were the first to rise and say, all right, you're on. Let's roll the dice and do it. And once Lachiel and his Camerons rose in support of Charles Edward Stuart, the others of the clans came in, but they didn't all come in. That was the point. There were others that saw it in their interests to fight against the Jacobite rebellion. So this is the, this is the way in which it's not all Highlanders against all Lowlanders. It's not all Scots against all English. It was much more mixed up and jumbled and political than that. But... Because I'm a Cameron, you see, the gravestone that the photograph has me kneeling down besides, my mum, to this day, claims descent from Cameron of Lachiel. So, by blood, theoretically, I've got people in my ancestry who fought and died and lie in unmarked graves on the battlefield at Culloden. So it's, it's part of my, it's my... I've said it before and I'll say it again. It, it, it was one of those foundational experiences of my life learning at that young age from my mum and dad that I was connected to something like Culloden switched a switch in my head and I thought history's not something that happened to strangers in the past it's about me the events of history partly explain who I am and the other foundational moment was learning about my both of my grandfathers fighting in the first world war and surviving although wounded and so I thought, right, the First World War is not just something that happened to millions of people a hundred years ago. It's my family history as well. So those two things, Culloden and the First World War, and hearing about them and thinking about them through the prism of my mum and dad, is why I love, that's where the love in the love letter comes from. Because history for me is personal. It didn't happen to other people. It happened to my people. <laughs> And once that realisation or sensation occurred for me, ever since then I've thought, somewhere out there are the dusty bones of Neolithic farmers to whom I must be connected. Or Mesolithic hunters, even older. You know, and I must have ancestors who, who saw the Romans march north in their legions. Once I realised that I was connected to anything, I realised I must be potentially connected to everything. All the way back into the deepest, darkest past. So, so Culloden for me is a is a it's part of my origin myth <laughs> in my imagination if nowhere else but it's 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 one of a handful of stories that I feel personally about and it's a beautiful location isn't it 
Well, yes, it is. It is, and it looks more and more beautiful all the time because, as I say, because such careful efforts have been made, and the hills are are, are in view, off on the off in the distance, off on the horizon. Uh, and it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a picturesque spot. Although ultimately, it's a graveyard, a butcher's yard. And when you're standing there, do you sense it? Oh well, I do. I do, but then I'm wired up like that. When I when I go there, I find it to be a sad place. And I'm sad for everybody involved, you know, because it was political machinations. It was rival houses, Hanovers against Stuarts. But ultimately, the bigger picture was the war of the Austrian succession, which was being fought on the continent by several European states. It wasn't just Britain and France. It was, it was a whole hodgepodge of allies and enemies. And on account of that, Ordinary guys, like you and me, end up fighting on Culloden Moor on the 16th of April 1746, getting cut to bits with swords and bayonets. And I just find it a place of sadness, like so many others. The beautiful light sharp air and constantly changing weather make this a place that buoys the spirits. A busy, bustling fishing port in 1745, where a young lad who would go on to help shape history got his first glimpse of the sea and the oceans upon which he would make his name. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, and please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.